sound great this morning, and uh, Thomas is right. Y'all look great, too. I uh, appreciate that. I, uh, I'm wearing a suit my mother-in-law picked out for me um, <laughs> because she will be here later this morning, uh, so just pretend I dress like this all the time, and next week we'll go back to normal, so that's cool. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I want to talk today about the good news that we are here to celebrate. Let me start with a story. When I was a teenager, someone told me I am a sinner. That's true, right? I am a sinner, and we all are sinners. You are a sinner too. And honestly, I don't know, there may not be an easier group to convince of their sinfulness than boys in their teenage years. I don't know. Um, I was sitting in a room much like you are today, listening to a preacher much like you are today, and the preacher was telling me that because of my sin, I had accrued a huge debt with God. That I owed him so much because of my sin that the only thing that would pay off my debt is that I would have to spend eternity in hell. That's what I deserved because of my sin. And as a teenager, you know, that sounds about right to your ears. But then the preacher said this. That God in his infinite mercy sent Jesus to earth to die in my place and all the hell that my teenage sins had earned were poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And he suffered deeply for my sins and he, he canceled that debt and all I had to do was pray a certain type of prayer and I would escape the hell that I owed God and after I died, he would let me come into heaven with everyone else who had prayed that prayer. And my sin had cost God so much that now I, I really owe him big time. And then the preacher did this. You've probably experienced this if you've been in church very long. He said, I want every head bowed, every eye closed. He said, if you want to pray that prayer with me today, I want you to raise your hand. And even though at this point in my life I had prayed that prayer multiple times before, I looked around at my life and I was convinced, you know, my sins are still probably sending me to hell. And so I raised my hand again, fingers crossed, praying that prayer, this time hoping it would stick. Now for years, if you would have asked me, how do you become a Christian? I would have probably told you some version of that story. It's a story that really, it starts with me feeling really bad about my sin. And it ends with me owing God big time. And I, I probably would have told you, hey, basically, in a nutshell, that's the gospel. You may have heard something similar at some point in your journey, but what I'm here to tell you today, and this is what Easter requires us to focus on. While there is truth in that story that I just told you, Easter shows us that the real story of the gospel is so much bigger than that story. Easter shows us that the difference between that story that I heard and the real gospel, it is like the difference between a note and a symphony. It took God years to rescue me from the small gospel that I received. It took God years to help me hear the song of the real gospel. So today on Easter, I thought, you know, it's Easter. Why not just take a stab at telling the good news in all of its bigness? Can I do that this morning? Because I believe this. It's not just hearing that one note that has power to transform us, but it's hearing the whole symphony that changes our lives. So let me tell you the story of the gospel that is revealed on this Easter morning. You know, the gospel, it starts where all great stories start, in the beginning. 
That's where they all start, right? In the beginning, God created time, and he created matter, and he created the universe and everything in it, and he created the earth, but the earth was just like this lifeless and empty thing. It was a thing, but it really had no shape. God showed up and he hovered over this lifeless thing that was just chaotic, the chaos that was earth, and he began to do something that only God can do. He began to bring life out of chaos, and he created, and he created, and just before he finished creating, he made people, and he looks at the woman, and he looks at the man, and he says, well, this is the best thing I've ever made. He said, this is very good, and he did something interesting. He put his image into every person. So no matter what we do, no matter what happens in our life, no matter how much we're sinning, even when we're confused, even when we're hurting, that that image is still in us. No human will ever be able to stop bearing that image. We've never been powerful enough to shake off the image of God. And that image of God within us, it fills every human who's ever lived with an inherent worth and value and dignity. And God looks at these first two humans. He looks at Eve and Adam, and uh, he put them in this garden. It's a garden where everything is as it should be. In this garden, like there was just a rightness to life. It's really hard to capture. Words fail to really capture how great this garden was. Maybe the best word uh, to describe it is a Hebrew word. It's the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that before. Shalom, it just means peace. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It's like this moment where everything is simultaneously at rest, but it's also purposefully active, like where God and people and creation are just entwined in this beautiful dance of relationship. It's shalom. And it was so good. It was so good that the humans, they were totally at peace about who they were totally at peace about their place in the world. They were the created, God was the creator, and that truth brought them peace. It's pretty good. But God, he had bigger plans. God, in his great wisdom, he desired that we as people love him and trust him. And not like in this robotic way where you have no choice but to follow what the program dictates. But he wanted real love, real trust in the true sense of the word. And to create that for these people, he gave them something else. He gave them freedom. And he gave them the ability to listen to other voices besides his own. It's kind of a crazy truth to think about, but it really is true that God loves you so much that he would never force you to love him. The love that he wants between you and him, it's a love that comes out of trusting him. It's not a love that comes out of obligation or fear or requirement. And so he allowed us to walk away from him. And we've been walking away ever since. It was stupid, right? It was stupid. We never should have done it. You know, it's like we just had to know what would our life be like if we fired God and just took over for him, right? And like almost instantly, we realized, well, this is a mistake. And then the finger pointing started and the blame and the pain and the death because suddenly we're like in the driver's seat of our own lives. And that sounds real appealing to all of us, but as soon as we did it, we realized we weren't up to the task. And from that moment until this one, human history has stretched out, and it has been a story of brokenness, of shame, and of an utter lack of shalom, hasn't it? 
Now, I don't, I don't know if you ever think about this, but if we were like in God's shoes in that moment when he gave us the freedom and we chose to walk away, like that would have filled me with uh, like hurt and rejection. And that probably would have twisted into bitterness and anger and rage. And I probably would have burned those humans to the ground for rejecting me. But that's not God. That's never been God. That's not who God is. You know, God's love for us never changed, even though ours for him did. And this is true. Not only are we powerless to change the fact that we bear God's image, we're also powerless to change the fact that God deeply loves us. You're not powerful enough to change his love for you. And no matter how many awful things you do, no matter how broken you are, God's love for you is untouchable. And from that moment forward, uh, God, he began to lovingly pursue we who had rejected him. He'd never forced us to love him, but again and again, he would prove his goodness to us. And from that moment until this one, he's been trying to convince us that he is trustworthy, that he is loving, that in him alone is found the shalom that our hearts long for. And so after that happened, he started interacting with us. He started interacting with people like you and I, and even though we'd rejected him, he still loved us, and he still was inviting us always, trust me again, trust me again. It was as if he had to reintroduce himself to us like we'd forgotten, and he began to tell us who he was and what he was like because we, we couldn't remember, and he told us that he was good. He began to tell us the things that he valued. He began to tell us about the shalom that he had for us, and he actually he gave us conveniently a list a list of what life would be like if we trusted him, a list of the things that he cared about and he valued and the shalom that he had for us. He told us in this list that he longed for us again to have satisfaction and contentment with who we are, with what we have. He told us he valued what was true. He told us that he believed that everyone had rights and those rights should not be violated no matter who they were. He was the sort of God who valued fidelity and valued commitments to each other. He was a God who wanted our relationships with one another to be safe, not painful. He was a God who valued life, all life. He valued family because he made us to be connected to one another. He valued rest, and he worried about this. He worried that left our own devices, we'd work too hard, and we'd start to allow ourselves to be defined by what we can accomplish and what we can produce here on this earth, and he didn't want that for us. He wanted us to be defined by who we are in his eyes, and he worried we wouldn't be kind to ourselves. He worried we would take his name and attach it to all sorts of stuff that he never said. We'd get confused about who he was, he knew we had this tendency to worship things because we are the created. And we're looking for this creator that we've rejected. And he didn't want that for us, this worship of lesser things. And ultimately what he wanted was for us to just trust him again, to believe that he's good, to love him, and to enter back into this shalom that we were created to know. But he knew us, right? He'd seen our work before. Uh, he knew we, none of us could just flip this switch and do it. He knew we'd try. We'd try to, like, fix things, but we'd mess it up a lot. We'd misunderstand what he wanted. I think we, we all think that kind of he wants us to fix it because that's what we would want if we were God. It's like you humans broke it, so you all should fix it. But God never wanted that. 
He's never wanted us to fix anything. What he's always longed for is what we had in the beginning, that we would just trust him with it entirely, that he would fix it. We'd just be the created and we'd just be those whom God loves. And so through the years, God's revealing himself to us, telling us that he's good, but he's also revealing to us this promise. And he kept promising, if you all would just trust me, just trust me. I'll recreate it all. I'll restore it all. I'll make all things new again. Just trust me. My favorite version of this promise comes out of Ezekiel. He says to his people, I will take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and I'll bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees. You will be my people and I will be your God like it was in the garden. That's always been his message to us again and again is trust me, I'm good. His message is not try harder. His message has never been I'm so angry at you. His message is not, y'all owe me big time. His message has always been, I will gather you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. You will be my people. Trust me. And then the day came. The day came when God could not tolerate the distance between us anymore. And instead of doing what I would have done, like building a ladder so we could climb our way to him or like a bridge so with diligence we could cross over to his side, instead he decided he was going to come to us and in the most unexpected way possible, God showed up. Jesus, the most famous name on earth, Jesus, fully God, fully human, Jesus, the Son of God, a man like no other, like just to be in his presence was to taste again that shalom that we were created to know. And the day came when he started telling people who he was, and he started telling people that he'd come to reintroduce them to God, the goodness of God. He told people God was for them. And God was establishing a kingdom on earth, this kingdom where shalom reigned, where things were as it should be, where we trusted God and we followed him. And he said, listen, this is happening all around you. Just believe it. And he invited us into it. Everybody loved what Jesus announced. They discovered a God who really could be trusted, a God who actually liked them. They discovered uh, and began to believe that maybe God actually would restore them and make everything right. And then, to make it even better, Jesus started demonstrating this kingdom that he talked about. He started doing things like nobody had seen before. Most people couldn't help but believe when they saw these things. Everybody just, they, they, they knocked down the door trying to get around him. And it was as if Jesus had thrown open the door of heaven and said, hey, I've been saving a seat for all of you. It was amazing. But you know how the story goes. Um, as amazing as it was, there were some people who were challenged by what he said. They didn't like it. They felt threatened, especially by this idea that God would somehow chase after every person. They didn't like this idea that in God's eyes, everyone had equal dignity and value because they had been working so hard to gain extra value. They'd been working so hard to fix this mess 
And when Jesus shows up and says, listen, God doesn't need your help fixing things. And by the way, you're making it even worse with this hyper-controlling religion. They were insulted when Jesus challenged them to turn from their efforts and trust in a God who would cleanse and restore them. See, they thought their obedience was so much better than everyone else's sin. And then this guy shows up that just being in his presence highlighted the shallowness of their righteousness. And so they plotted and they schemed because they were jealous. It was as if uh, like they were back in the garden and again they have this choice and they chose to trust themselves. They chose moralism over God's goodness. They chose their efforts over the grace that Jesus offered. They chose to kill him so they didn't have to listen to him anymore. You know, it's silly how we think sometimes we're smarter than God. Um, it, it's really silly how we think like we can, uh, we're powerful enough to change his plans. Like our evil could overcome his goodness. But the people who killed Jesus, they discovered on that day what I think we all have to discover is that the goodness of God cannot be stopped. And as it turns out what these religious leaders did, it was exactly what Jesus expected. He didn't go to the cross because he was trapped. He went to the cross because he was willing. And while he's hanging there and his enemies are gloating because they don't have to listen to him anymore, He's doing a couple things. First, he was removing that barrier of sin. That final barrier fell. He was forgiving us for all the pain we'd caused the heart of God. He was absorbing all of the anger of God so there was not a drop left for any of us. That was the plan from the beginning. And the second thing, and the more important thing, is he was proving to us once and for all the nature of God is fundamentally good. God has always only ever been good. And his arms are always open, that he can always be trusted, that for anyone who wants it, no matter how far we've run from the shalom and the trust that we've had with God, we can always return home. So he died willingly. And they placed him in a tomb. And in John 20, we read about uh, this moment, the first Easter moment, where one of his uh, friends and his followers, Mary, discovers the fact that he is risen from the dead for the first time. Look at John 20, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I, I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? And I think those two questions in a lot of ways, those are the questions that Jesus has for every one of us. Those are the questions of Easter. Why are you crying? Why is your heart troubled? The risen Jesus asks us that. He says, would you share your pain with me? And we use a lot of fancy spiritual words like confession of sin and stuff like that to describe what that is, but it's really simple. It's just, we're just sharing our brokenness with God. We're just saying, we see this too. It grieves me just like it grieves you. The world's broken, we're broken, and we tell them about it. And here's the thing. We don't tell them about that stuff because we're afraid of hell. 
We tell him about that stuff because he's kind, because he's good, because he asked. And he'll actually listen. Why are you crying, he says. And then he asks the second question of Mary. I think it's also a question for us. Who is it that you are looking for? And I love how he phrases it. He doesn't say, what are you looking for? He says, who is it that you're looking for? Because we are not looking for a what. It's not what our soul longs for. We aren't looking for like a set of doctrines to believe. We're not looking for a set of commands to obey. We're certainly not looking for a religion to sign up and join. What our soul longs for can never be satisfied with a what. It's who. It's Jesus. It is only Jesus. He says, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Mary responds to his questions. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's one of the mysteries of the Bible. Why didn't she recognize Jesus? You know, I know a lot of times I don't recognize him because I get distracted. I get caught up in all sorts of stuff. Maybe that was her deal. She was distracted by grief and fear. Maybe he looked different, I don't know. Into all of her distractions and confusion, Jesus just says her name, Mary. Mary is shaken for a lot of reasons, but I think at its core, she realizes in that moment that the goodness of God is better than she ever thought. She realized that not only did Jesus care enough about her to die, but he was powerful enough to be raised from the dead. And a God that caring and that powerful could be trusted. She didn't know how it was all going to work out. She didn't know what was next. She just knew that the God she'd been looking for her whole life, the who that she longed for, that God said her name. Verse 17, Jesus said, do not hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. Tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to his disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. You know, I think on Easter, we see the gospel for what it actually is. Like, we don't just hear this one note, but we hear the whole symphony, or we can. On Easter, we see this, that the gospel is not primarily a story of how bad you are. The gospel is a story of how good God is. The gospel is not primarily a story about how much you owe God. The gospel is a story about how much you can trust God. And in the gospel, we see this truth that the good God that we can trust has been calling our name our entire life because he's good. And here's the thing. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to come down front. You don't need to fill out some form. You don't need to pray a very specific sort of prayer. All that stuff is fine. But Jesus, he just makes it so much simpler. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent, we overthink this word all the time. It just means to turn from one thing to another. To turn from what we've been counting on to Jesus and to believe that he's good and he can be trusted. That's what happened to Mary when he said her name. The Bible says, Mary turned towards him. She turned from the fear and from the worry. She turned from focusing on herself. She believed this good news that Jesus was actually there. 
that Jesus was actually risen and that he was good and that he could be trusted. And that is what God has wanted from us all along. He's only ever been good. And when Jesus says your name, the risen Jesus proves it. Who is it that you are looking for? Could it be that what you've been looking for your entire life is this God who is good and who knows your name? Could it be that what you've been looking for is this God who would happily give up everything he has so he could have you? Could it be that what you've been looking for is this God who is fundamentally for you, who likes you, who wants to share his life with you forever? That's the risen Jesus Mary discovered. Who are you looking for? You know, what makes the gospel challenging, especially for those of us who have sat through a handful of Easter's in our life, is it's so easy to shift and to change that question. Instead of who, we start focusing on what. We start focusing on what do I need to know? What do I need to stop doing? What do I need to start doing? What do I need to do because I owe God big time? And you know, all those questions, they're well-intentioned questions, I think, but you'll notice they all subtly put us back in the driver's seat. Without thinking it, we start trying to control our way back to the shalom that we've lost. We start trying to orchestrate this life that we think we need, and we start pursuing what instead of who. And when we do that, we lose sight of the gospel, the real gospel. There's a caution in Easter. Easter cautions those of us who believe in Jesus from thinking that we don't still need the gospel, from thinking that was a day long ago. You know what I suspect about Mary? I can't prove this, but I bet it's true. I bet there was not a day from that day in the tomb till her last day that she did not think about that moment. And I suspect for the rest of her life, she lived in that moment. She lived in that discovery of a good God who called her name, who'd risen from the dead and called her to trust him. See, when we make the gospel about escaping hell, it becomes this one note event in our past. But when we make the gospel about discovering a good God who knows your name and can be trusted, it becomes the symphony of our life. And I don't care how long you've believed in Jesus, you need the gospel today. Let me tell you how this gospel story ends. It's how it ends for Mary, how it ends for all of us. So there I was as a teenager. I've got my hand up high, fingers crossed, praying again I could escape the hell that I deserved because of my sins and be led into God's heaven. You know, I... I think about the, the, that moment and think about what I was thinking. I, I realize it now. I was totally focused on myself. I, I was. I was totally focused on my sin and on my failure and totally focused on praying just the right way so that I could get into heaven because I, I, just, I was convinced of this in that moment that God made hell for people like me. I was convinced of that. I mean, you may have been convinced of something like that at some point in your life, that God made hell for you. You know what Jesus wants to convince you of on Easter morning? Let me just read his words. He says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God? Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Listen, God didn't make hell for you. God made heaven for you. And now, you, you know, he's up there right now getting your room ready. I don't know what that means, but that's what he's doing. He created this earth for you too, and he has something for you here. And whether it's here on this earth or one day after we die, what he has for you is what he's always had for you. Shalom, peace, his goodness. That is where our story began, and that is where the gospel ends. God recreates it all. Only this time, there's trust. And as we trust in the goodness of God, something remarkable happens. Look, God's dwelling place is now among people. He'll dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. One day everything will be restored because that's what the good God wanted all along. You know, he is restoring it right now. He invites us into that work. And one day it will be fully restored and we will get to sit back and just enjoy it as the created because that's what he longs for. It's Easter morning. The risen Jesus is here and he's asking you, why are you crying? He wants to know your pain and he's asking you, who are you looking for? He's hoping you'll discover what you've always been looking for, which is him. Hear him, he's saying your name. Believe, turn. Trust that he is good, that he's only ever been good and that what he has for us is what he's always had for us. The shalom our heart longs for. That is the symphony of the gospel and you have been invited into that song.